First Fuel, a podcast bringing perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and it's a pretty special episode this week recorded from the floor of the National Energy Efficiency Conference 2022, which uh, took place live last week at the Pullman Melbourne on the park on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I was lucky enough to be joined by two of my best mates and two of the smartest people I know, Frankie Muscovich of course National Policy Manager for Sustainability and Regulatory Affairs at the Property Council of Australia and Tennant Reid, the lead on energy, environment and climate policy at Australian industry group. Uh, it was a serendipitous, unplanned recording of First Fuel. We had the equipment there for some other stuff and I, I grabbed Frankie and, and Tennant and said, well, you know what, we've just had one of the most momentous federal elections for energy and climate policy of our generation and uh, I can't let you two out of here without uh, picking your brains. So that's exactly what we did. Hope you enjoy the show. Frankie, Tennant, I'm delighted to welcome you to this, I think I'm going to say live on video version of First Fuel here at the National Energy Efficiency Conference. Two of my favourite guests in the in the, uh, the back catalogue of First Fuel here in the flesh. Thanks for being with me. Glad to be on the reunion tour. <laughs> As the token Sydney sider of the three of us, can I just say how delightful it is to be seeing each other in three dimensions? It's fabulous. It is incredible. And, yeah. and how's the timing? What are we? Uh, four, five days after one of the craziest elections of my lifetime, all the mental things happened all at once. Tenet, what was your reaction to what happened on Saturday night? And also, what do you think it means for this amazing new parliament that uh, we have before us? So I think we're going to be processing what happened for quite some time to come, particularly uh, what the rise of the teal independence means for the future of the Liberal Party yeah. and the Coalition. I think they're going to be processing for a while. I think so. It could be a long while. Uh, I think uh, in 1989, uh, the President of China was asked what was the most important effect of the French Revolution, and he said it was too early to tell. <laughs> we could be on a, <laughs> on a story like that. Uh, but the new parliament is going to be one where there's a lot of interest in climate and energy and uh, the numbers appear to work out such that quite a lot can be done there's going to be tussles over exactly what, how fast where, who You know, there's differences differences even among the teals uh, let alone between Labor and Greens uh, but there's uh, there is a strong sense that everybody's pushing in the same direction and there have been some pretty strong voices from the coalition uh, suggesting that um, directionally uh, that is their view too. So it's going to be an interesting three years. Well, it's, a, it's a fascinating sort of moment picking up on that idea of where the, where the coalition goes. Like there's a lot of excitement that there is seems to be a, a, a sizable working majority for ambitious climate action and more of an argument around the ambition. But as, as someone, I think we've all 
described ourselves as grubby centrists in the past. People that are really interested in building that consensus in the centre of politics so that we can work through this transition um, regardless of who's in government. It seems to be really important to be where the Liberal Party lands in terms of what messages they take out of this election, Frankie. Yeah. And, and let's be clear, this was a climate election, despite all of our conversations sort of being had in the lead-up to it and the, the media narrative much more focused around cost of living and, and like, those are certainly pressures and will have factored into people's decisions, but people have not forgotten about the impact of the 2019-20 bushfires, the floods in Brisbane. You only have to look at the extraordinary... Um, movement of the Greens, particularly in Queensland, picking up lower house seats uh, along the Brisbane River, um, you know, to suggest that you know it was a very strong motivator for people. And yeah, and, and let's be clear, I think to Tennant's point, that the tussle in the next three years is going to be just how fast we can move uh, if the Labor Party, and it looks like they'll get a majority, albeit quite slim, in the House seek to legislate their 43% minimum um, emissions reduction target by 2030 through the parliament, they're going to find they're going to need the support of a, a hefty chunk of Greens in the Senate to pass that through. So we're not, it's not a debate about 26 to 28% uh, and how we might address that. It's the 43 to 60% um, bracket that we're going to be arguing about for the next three years. And to me, the really exciting part of that conversation is not so much the legislating of the targets, but now we can throw open the conversation about all the policies we need to deliver anywhere close to that level of ambition. Because as we've discussed, and I, it is important to then think about how the Liberal Party chooses to reflect on this time in the next little while, having you know been one of the couple of protagonists over the last decade, choosing to focus this debate on the transition largely of the energy sector when in fact we need to talk about transitioning the whole economy um, by 2050 and that includes the built environment, it includes heavy industry, it includes agriculture, it includes transport and bringing policies to bear in all those sectors is going to be important and that's what I'm excited about. We can have some hope that there's going to be a more nuanced conversation about those different sectoral pathways and particular policies that support that. I mean, one of the things that we've discussed, Tennant, is how much, I guess, uh, wriggle room the Labor Party has given themselves because of the way that they've decided to uh, shape their election policies. You know, the safeguard mechanism really being the centrepiece of of Labor's emissions reduction policies. And and as we know, the safeguard mechanism, theoretically at least, doesn't require any legislation, right? Well, there's an interesting wrinkle there. So, uh, yes, Yes, the, the baselines themselves can be changed by uh, regulation and by executive decision. Uh, but for a safeguard 2.0 to work efficiently, it really needs this crediting below baseline component to be a part of it. That's very important for smoothing out what can be very lumpy individual circumstances and avoiding... Uh, Uh, really unequal marginal costs of abatement among covered entities. 
and the legal advice from actual lawyers, not me, <laughs> is that to create a property right in those credits below baseline, you do need new legislation. Uh, now, I can think as a, uh, maybe not a bush lawyer, maybe a, uh, an inner city uh, fake lawyer, uh, I can think of sneaky ways using the carbon farming legislation and reg changes there to do an end run around that. But real lawyers have said to the previous government, no, you need, you need to pass a law. So there probably is going to be some parliamentary argy-bargy over the design of the safeguard mechanism. Which, fascinatingly, like for all of the focus, and understandably so, on the Teal independence, given that Labor's secured, or appears to have secured that low House majority, means that the Senate's going to be where it's at. And we seem to have uh, a, a, a couple of pathways, um, potentially a, a progressive majority in the Senate, but they're going to be asking for Labor to go further. There's also the, the potential that right-of-centre politicians could go, well, you know what, um, the, the best outcome we're going to get here is to uh, align ourselves with Labor and actually support them on this on this target and have effectively neutralise climate as an issue. How do both of you see that playing out? Well, so I think the reality is, we talked about this period of introspection that's going to occur for the Liberal Party, um, there aren't more votes on the right for them to, you know, sort of cannibalise that are, that are going to win them a, a general election in three years' time. We have compulsory voting in this country most people sit somewhere around the middle and so they're going to need to think about the sorts of policy positions they can bring to bear that provide an attractive alternative to these teal independent candidates and so to the extent they're able to match ambition at a high level I think the obvious kind of flow on of that dynamic for me is they'll be looking for sensible things uh, that they can support that, you know, perhaps don't represent um, having another ideological fight amongst themselves. So um, I think things like energy efficiency and looking at the demand side ought to be some of the most attractive things for them to look at, as well as, I think, perhaps um, building on existing levers, you know, that are already in place in the legislative framework, whether, whether that's the safeguard mechanism, whether that's, you know, other aspects of policy. I could talk about the built environment uh, that, you know, they've, they've uh, done some things uh, during their watch, but, but they'll need to ramp up the ambition of that to be competitive again. So I want to, each of you to give me your pitch on if, the, if you were talking to a, any colour of politics, you know, yellow, teal, green, aquamarine, um, and you were saying, well, look, this is, this is the one thing that for, for my sector would make the biggest difference in the, and a significant step forward in terms of, in terms of a, a climate outcome for the, for the property sector, Frankie. What, what, what's at the top of the property council system? That's really easy. It's, uh, it's ratings for homes linked to mandatory disclosure uh, down the track at point of sale or lease. So 
we, you know, you could go into a um, an appliance store and you can buy a fridge and you can choose between a five-star fridge and a two-star fridge. Don't know why you'd do that, but you've got that choice available to you because you can tell what the performance is like. The, the biggest expensive, um, you know, asset that people could hope to own during their life uh, has no such, you know, sort of yardstick around it. And buildings across the economy account for about a quarter of, of emissions through their operations, let alone talking about embodied emissions. Over half the electricity consumption is taken up in buildings, and half of that is in the existing residential market. So it's a huge chunk of emissions, and it's an area where we don't have a lot of the foundational policy building blocks in place to, you know, to, to sort of ramp up ambition on. We need that foundation so that we can talk about disclosure, we can talk about banks providing attractive financing uh, to encourage upgrades and retrofits, uh, let alone getting to the piece on government incentives to drive action. So ratings for homes, let's supercharge it, let's have a focus on homes because, as we know, uh, people's bills are only going in one direction in the next little while and we need to start now on all the things that we need that we need to bring to bear to, to start to reduce that pressure. I'm going to circle back to that, but Tenant, give me a pitch for what, what's on the AO Group's wish list um, for all the exciting meetings you're going to be having in the next little while in Canberra. Well, if we could prioritise one thing, our top uh, election asks in climate and energy wouldn't have had 20 dot points. <laughs> but... I will back up Frankie to the extent of uh, not a single ask but a vibe, which is that the demand side was uh, a blank spot on the canvas of election policy, certainly from the new government, uh, and the, the period of high electricity and high gas prices that is upon us is a one where, in the short term, there are probably no very good answers, but there are certainly dumb answers, and there are answers that are smarter for the medium term and the long term, even if what they can do in the next six months is pretty minimal. And so trying to resolve uh, affordability problems and supply uh, balancing problems on the demand side, not just the supply side, is very important. And so that suggests a lot more work to be done on household efficiency, uh, on energy management, on... uh, fuel switching Um, the safeguard mechanism is highly relevant to energy efficiency uh, for the very large facilities that are covered by it but otherwise we're going to need to be both making more strategic use of what the states and the feds already have in place around white certificate schemes, uh, rating schemes, uh, product standards and so on uh, and coming up with new uh, policies where necessary that are actually part of a strategy are not just, you know, announceables. Uh, and it's not just about money. Uh, it, it is probably at this point even more about increasing the capacity uh, of, um, of tradies, of equipment suppliers, making the most of um, the, the opportunity we have on the demand side 
decade when it's it's never going to have been more relevant uh, than when uh, just in in the last couple of days a mid-tier gas retailer has collapsed uh, with uh, hundreds of business customers around the country who are going some of them were on spot contracts some of them were on fixed contracts they are now getting told that their retailer of retailer of last resort can sell them gas for north of $40 a gigajoule. So that's a, that's a rude supply. For those playing at home, we used to complain about $10 a gigajoule as unprecedentedly high and, like, we've gone to the moon without a spacesuit. That is quite an image. Quite an image. I can see manufacturers' heads popping right around the country. Um, it, it, it's, the, it's the tension in the space, right, because there is opportunities to, to reduce, uh, uh, reduce energy costs by, you know, leaning into efficiency, but you need to have the people and the companies to be able to do it. Um, so I suppose in terms of building that capacity and building that those programs, the best time to do it is probably 10 years ago, and the next best time is right now, because it, it, it improves that resilience. I mean, you've, you've got those skills in the market, Frankie, that you can put them to work when we hit some of these crises, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not as though we're starting from a baseline of zero, but it is true to say that if we got a national home energy rating scheme up tomorrow and it was all of a sudden mandatory to go get a rating when you were selling or leasing a house we, we do not have the workforce at that scale uh, to deliver that but, but we have had over the last decade a series of you know uh, quite good experience and, and sort of engagement within different community programs we've had a decade of pilots and of sort of small scale um, you know demonstration and what we need is leadership from the federal government uh, states and territories buying in and saying absolutely this is a priority and we need to build on the good work that's already there but scale 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 right and it doesn't happen quickly and that's why you've got to start now tenant frankie it has been an absolute delight seeing you in the flesh and having this little chat and such a timely on as well thanks for joining us great to be here thanks busy times ahead indeed let's get to work yep all right, well, uh, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. But before you disappear, you might be interested to learn that Frankie Tennant and I are kicking off a little bit of a side project very, very shortly. Uh, it's a new podcast called Let Me Sum Up, where we dig into the uh, never-ending cavalcade of climate and energy reports and try and make make sense of them uh, every fortnight in your feeds. Uh, we'll have the first episode out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, in the meantime, the, the website's up, uh, letmesumup.net. You can check that out if that sounds of interest to you. But in the meantime, if you have comments on this episode of First Fuel, you can find us on Twitter. Tenant is at Tenant Reed. Frankie is at Frankie Muscovich. My handle is at Luke Menzel. To keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management and demand response, you'll find the Energy Efficiency Council at eec.org.au. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, including upcoming live recordings, visit eec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon.